It would be nice to find a way to capture the influence that J. LaPere has had on the last generation of the Latrum Corporation and its subsidiaries, including Intralox. It would also be nice to capture the influence that Jay has had on my own learning since I joined the company 26 years ago. But I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to fully capture the influence he's had in both of those spheres, so I won't waste time on an inadequate attempt to do that. I'm going to go straight instead to the primary source, an interview that we recorded a couple of days ago with Jay LaPere talking about the most central themes of the Latrum business philosophy. So we are here in New Orleans the day before the tropical depression is supposed to hit New Orleans, but we're pretty fearless and we do what needs doing. I'm here this afternoon with Jay LaPere, one of the owners and the board chairman and president of the Latrum Corporation, which owns the subsidiary Interlox that I work for. And so this is another episode of the Triple Win Workplace. Jay, thanks for being here. John, it's great to be here. <laughs> Appreciate being invited. That's, uh, I'm really pumped. The um, fountainhead for what makes Latrum and Interlox unique is something we keep calling culture, right? And when you use the word culture, that's, that's, that's a word that can really get people to go to sleep, and yet it really has profound importance in terms of the experience people have at the workplace and in terms of making profits and serving customers well. So what we try to do in this podcast is how do you make the exploration of culture something that's not academic and boring, but we bring home the reality of it. I guess the first question I would ask you is, if you were going to describe Latrum culture in a briefest, best possible way, how would you summarize it? Well, I think, I think first of all, let me separate what I'll call uh, culture, which is an abstraction and is always a bit fuzzy, from what I'll call our philosophy and our continuous improvement program, which which I think is, a, is, is worthy of, of, uh, of separating. But so when we talk culture, it's an abstraction, and it, it's really sort of the dominant ideas and habits of any given group, right? And it can be positive or negative. It can be an honest or a dishonest, a productive or a dysfunctional. It can be all those things. So when we come back and we say, now let's describe uh, what, we, what we mean by the philosophy and what we try to achieve there, I think the philosophy is, is, is really... A, an effort to to design the most productive culture in a way that uh, to, to create some values that people can aspire to that will align individual interests you know we're all self-interested so we all bring that human motivation to it to create a, a win-win relationship that aligns all these specialized efforts to produce a significant and continually improving value for customers and continually improving value for all the people in the relationship. So it's it's really a, a foundation. It's a it's a human values driven uh, aspirational idea. We invest a lot in making our business philosophy real. We have I think nearly ten trainers at last count depending on who you count in that group and we get active engagement from our most senior leadership including Edel Blanks the head of Interlox and yourself it's pretty expensive what actual problems are you trying to solve 
by pushing our culture so hard or the late-term business philosophy so hard? Or what upside are you trying to create? Yeah, I think at this stage, I would say it's probably a 10% problems we're trying to solve. And uh, the overwhelmingly dominant is trying to achieve and trying to unleash what I'll call the potential we have in every person in the organization. If you imagine that every person came to work every day thinking, how am I going to make my biggest possible contribution to help the team, which means how am I going to do great work? How am I going to understand and align with the values and goals of the company? And then how am I going to align and think about, well, what more can I do? If every person came to work every day thinking that way and then disciplining themselves to actually execute, then uh, I think that's the upside in it. And then it's, you know, all of the soft side of teamwork and all those other things. So it's really, it's really an upside uh, unleashing the potential in, uh, in people that, uh, that I think justifies this effort. So I told the story in episode one of my interview at Latrum 26 years ago. I'm interviewing with you, Jay, and three other executives. We go about an hour and a half. You are silent until pretty close to the end. And then you ask this question. You say, John, imagine you had an idea to improve the company, and I, Jay, said no. And you didn't use exactly these words, but it was pretty close to saying, convince me you're the kind of person I could trust to be persistent with the idea. Was that, were you just in the moment? Uh, Was there something you were seeing in me that made you think I was maybe not that guy? Or was that, uh, what was it? that made you make that such a point of emphasis? What, what, why is that so important to you? Well, I must have had the flu that day. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine myself being silent uh, all that time, but I'm, uh, I'm impressed that, uh, that that's a, a, at least a possible uh, iteration of the story. Um, but I, I think uh, foundationally it's, uh, it's about the fact that we all have blind spots and uh, that truth matters and reality matters. And if you... If you find people, and I think um, I might have been asking that question because I knew you were that type of person, and I wanted to make sure everyone else in the room, you know, heard that answer because we had worked together in our in our prior uh, association on that Lighthouse for the Blind board. But the idea being that reality matters; it doesn't matter who wins the debate, and if you can get someone who's going to say. Uh, what's the 1% chance and get you to rethink the 1% chance that an assumption might be wrong? Uh, that's how you uh, avoid what I'll call bigger mistakes and, and get to truth and learning faster. So that was the idea. The business philosophy is now encapsulized in a couple of one-pagers, but you know there's still quite a lot in it. Are there a vital few? Are there a few that you'd say prime the others? I think always uh, reality and reason are, you know, and are going to to be the foundation. And and but if you say in terms of personal habits, I think I think the idea of of being objective. Some people use the word humility. I think that's a bit of a mistake. I think the right word is to be objective about ourselves and be able to, to see in ourselves where we would notice that behavior or that problem in someone else, but we can't see it in ourselves. So really recognizing that and being introspective and working hard, I think, is a, is a big deal. But that's a very high-level standard. I think if you said, 
that's what we all aspire to. But there's a whole lot of foundational, you know, commitment to honesty, integrity, uh, hard work, all those sorts of things. So I don't know that I can separate one, but I would tend to say it matters a lot with each person in where you are in your development uh, in terms of how you personalize these values. Jay, my next question, I ask this sometimes in interviews and, and other times and it can weird people out, but is there an element of our culture that you'd say you're most sort of viscerally attached to when you see this one not not going consistently or, or going well, you notice that that tends to raise your cortisol level more than yeah. some other things might. Yeah, that's a really good one. I, I'm not sure, but there is there is one, and it's sort of an entitlement mentality when I see it. Uh, when I see people who who really can look at a situation and say, you know, your benefits don't do this, and I, I want this or I want that, and it's really about a, a, a from my perspective only. And that tells me that there's a there's a lack of a mindset. They see it as a as a us versus them kind of, uh, and it's it's really a misguided way to think about you know life you know, and having someone else pay for what I want is not the so that's probably the negative. But 90% I see nothing but inspiring positive. You know I work the people we 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 have and the the, the great leadership we have and the team we have at Intralox and in corporate there. They're fantastic people, and what I notice mostly is that they they do amazing amounts of work, and then they are very eager to to compliment and give credit to others in the work, and that is that's so uplifting to me to, to, to see that it's it's really exciting. It's 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 a lot of fun. So I'd say it's mostly the positive side that I viscerally uh, react to. How clear of a line do you think you can draw between our business philosophy and its practice? And customer wins. What's how does this connect to the ability to deliver customer value? Well, I think it's it's uh, it's all connected. As we frame this thing, we were looking at the beginning. We said this is all about human values and win-win relationships. And the relationships are not just from the shareholder, investor, and the employees, but it's the the continuous improvement in customer value. And you can look at what does it mean to have a level of trust inside the company where people know that they can trust that what the other person says, they believe it. They may be wrong, they may have made a mistake, but that accelerates the learning tremendously and it, and it, and it eliminates a whole lot of dysfunction. And then when you have principles of, of, and some of the things we, we, we put in where the, where the customer knows and we build credibility over time to say, we're gonna tell you the truth, we, you can count on us and we're not gonna break our promises. Those are all things that, that, that really make enduring relationships possible and seamless, what I'll call low friction relationships possible. So there's tremendous value in that. And, uh, and in working as a partner and having a customer know they're not gonna get gouged, but we're gonna, we're gonna get paid for what we do and we're gonna be reasonable about it. And there's always a range of disagreement, but it's, it's within a range because as we create enough value to know that, that we're important enough, all those things make it easy and, and wouldn't be possible without the uh, philosophy. We have grown our top line pretty consistently at a nearly 10% average annual rate for a long time. Profit line can go up and down depending on some investments we make, this, that, and the other, but it, it tended to track it over time. How closely would you connect the positive financial results of the company to the existence of the culture and the uh, enhanced practice, I guess, of the late-term business philosophy? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know that you can 
ever make a direct connection, but I would be surprised if we could be a global company, but for the the philosophy. The, it's the it's the philosophy and these uh, unifying values that we've said, if you want to work here, this is what you're signing on to and this is what you're committing to do that I think has made it possible for us to integrate these global teams in a way that, that enable uh, a level of innovation and customer value that wouldn't be possible. So it would, uh, I, I would think we'd be a very different company, a very small company, and uh, perhaps one that didn't exist. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's not uh, good. Right, not good. You've touched on this already, but let's maybe draw it into sharper focus. What do you think about the practice of the Latrum business philosophy makes this a more attractive workplace for employees? Yeah. I, I think, I, I think at, at its deepest level, people want to make the world a better place. And they also want to uh, be proud of what they do in making the world a better place. So they want to they want to to impact it but not not just in an altruistic you don't care. They want to they want to know that I've done something and I want to be proud of that. And I think uh, challenging people to uh, to to their best selves and to uh, to that moral ambitiousness and seeing other people who are able to do great work and and align that in a way that 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 integrates with with providing customer value and making the world better, I think those are really inspiring ideas. There's a certain level of, of understanding and tolerance in it that's also true because it's, I don't need to care that we, we all have the same you know, favorite music or something. What, I, what we care about is that we can trust each other to work together and treat each other with respect and that we can do great work and we're gonna build something great here. And that, that's, that's very inspiring for people. When you're interviewing somebody for a position here, what do you tend to see as go signs? What can you see during an interview that make you say, wow, I, I like that person. Let's try to find a way to make this work. I, I don't know that I've ever been good at uh, figuring much out from interviews, but I do think if, if you say, what am I trying to know? I'm trying to know if, if someone uh, is, is introspective enough and, and rational and is able to, to have the level of self-control to really use their, uh, their, their reason in a productive way. And that can mean that they, they have a level of emotional intelligence, they can, they can see it in themselves, they can see it in others, they, they, uh, they understand what they're good at, they, they use their resources, so they're problem solvers. And, and, uh, and I'd say the, the off-putting would be someone who's, who's I got it. You know, when, when someone always has it, that's sort of a sign. You mean nothing to learn. Right. It's, I've got it. You know, I got that. I got that. Let me tell you this. I got that. So, and I'm probably a little bit that way in terms of how I, how I come across, but I intellectually recognize that's a really bad thing. So, you know. So, somebody who's already here, right, you, you watch this person working, and you say, that's, that's a person I want to keep my eye on. I'm going to invest in that person. What are the habits or behaviors that would make you think that way? I think the biggest thing to invest in people is that the person really wants to learn and that they're, uh, they bring a level of objectivity to that effort. And then for me, it's, it's I also have to be dealing with someone who can scale the work. They, they have enough upside or they can be a communicator or whatever because I, we have a lot of people now and I just can't, uh, can't spend the time 
uh, with every person who uh, who wants to learn. So it's really a little bit about a pyramid of trying to trying to trying to scale. And we have a ton of great people, and I think we are doing a good job with uh, with that hierarchy. So if I were 18 years old and about to start building my career and just wanted to make myself extremely employable, what advice would you give me? I, I would say start working. Uh, uh, work for someone uh, in an environment you respect if, if you possibly can. If you can't, meaning if you get into that first job and you find you can't respect, do great work and, uh, and then leave as soon as you are finished, you know, when you can't learn. But uh, do great work and be in an environment where you can learn. And, and don't, don't, don't look for the best spot uh, because it's really about creating the best with what you got is 90% of it. Uh, people spend a lot of time looking for the perfect and it's not there. So Latrum has not always had the Latrum business philosophy and you were critical to the framing and the rollout of the business philosophy in the late 1980s. And you've said a few times that it was not some academic exercise but a solution to real problems. What do you mean when you say that? Well, we were losing money and going broke. That's a real problem. Uh, we made poor quality products. Our products were too expensive. We had a lot of disagreement and infighting. And we had a lot of really bad ideas. We had um, experts uh, who would say things like the customer is always right and perception is reality and you know just a, a things that float around but you just go, man, this is really bad. And um, so, and then we had a very big difference in, in our views of what it would take to be well managed. Uh, I would say that, that we had the strongest was a, a bit of a TI culture influence where someone had worked there and was really talented. And their view was, look, uh, you plan it and then you execute it and you don't allow any deviance or toleration for any, any of, you know, side projects or anything of that nature. And then you had sort of a free form coming in where people were saying, no, if you just let people kind of work. So we had to work through all that. That, mm -hmm. was, uh, that was the nature of where we were and why we, we knew we couldn't allow all these differences to just uh, remain dormant. <clears throat> so you were solving real problems, but this ended up having a nice architecture. There is a, mm -hmm. a, an integrated set of moving parts to the Latrim business philosophy. What was the actual creative process? How did this go from... You know, we're trying to stop stepping on rakes, and suddenly we have something that we're pretty happy as a as a pretty good architecture. Well, that's that's a that's a, a really interesting story because I I worked with a professor at Tulane, and he uh, we worked and we had something that was 160 pages long, and we did four days of training, and I thought I had anesthetized the world from all bad uh, management practice because I thought these concepts were so powerful. And I remember bringing it to my father and asking him, you know, what'd you think of this? And he said, God, it seems a little complicated. Can't you just, you know, put this on one page or something and graph it? And I thought, you know, he's so stupid. He doesn't understand any of the complexity. But so I was confident right from the start that we had something that would work. I was dead wrong uh, because after we did the training, nothing happened. But, but I was confident it was the right foundation, but I could also tell we needed to go a lot more steps. And the management assessment survey was the next big, the big thing, I think. <clears throat> what is the management assessment survey? Well, this is a survey that we conduct where we, we ask uh, each manager or supervisor's subordinates to answer questions about that person's uh, boss, the, the, the boss's performance. 
and it, it really is holding the manager accountable or the supervisor accountable to the principles and the philosophy and making sure they're doing a good job helping the, uh, the department or the team be effective. And that was highly controversial, and it, it really did create a lot of angst. We had a lot of people who felt this was a violation of the philosophy itself because they said, you're, you're no longer trusting us, you're doing something. And the, the idea would we would collect this anonymously, and then we would, we would uh, be able to, to um, report back the, uh, the information. And uh, I remember struggling with this, trying to get consensus or get buy-in on it, and it, it, it just couldn't get there. And the, and the uh, consultant I was working with said, um, well, so who's the boss at that company? <laughs> and and I, I thought about that for a minute, and I thought, I think I know who the boss is, so I think what I need to do is just say this is the way it's going to be. And within a relatively short time, everybody got comfortable with it, and it really becomes a, a useful tool. Most people think of it as a positive tool to help them now, so it's, it's a good thing. Short tangent, what are you mainly looking for when you read management assessment surveys, scores? What do you see as the vital few signs of health in that managerial relationship with anyone reporting to him or her? Well, I, I think when you have very low scores, that's an indicator of a, of a problem. It, it either indicate it, it can be, you don't know what the problem is, but because you don't never know whether it's just accumulation of the person not having high enough standards, so they have they have people who, who really aren't, or they're not doing the job or whatever. But I don't think there's any one thing that comes out of that survey. It's really a, 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 a indicator where, where you then say, let's do more follow-up. Uh, something we did notice early that's less of a problem now, but but early people who got very high scores, like all fives across the board consistently, uh, you know, perfect scores, that was an indicator of um, a potential, you know, this is a, a top-down, autocratic, uh, better, better answer the question right, or they just don't trust the system at all, which is another indicator of a problem. Either one. Right. Jay, you and I are both interested in something I'll call positive psychology. There are probably other better words for it, but the, the part of psychology that's not about necessarily addressing a dysfunction as much as helping humans understand how happy in the larger <coughs> sense of that word, not in the cakes and uh, candles sense of the word, how happy they can be and become. What exactly do you think is the theme of the movement and why does that intrigue you? I think the, the theme of the movement is to, is to study and to learn what are the, uh, the values and habits and ideas that enable uh, achievement and excellence in a happy life. And I think that just what you framed versus studying dysfunction. And I think psychology studied dysfunction and there's a limit to what you can learn. It's a little bit analogous to the economic principle where, where you say what causes poverty. And in my view, uh, that, that the answer is, well, nothing, nothing. You know, poverty is what exists until you create something. And if every skill and habit is learned and humans have an unlimited potential to develop skills and habits, then we have to come back to the idea that, that uh, we need to build the right foundation, the right principles on a personal level for us to be thinking about how we you know, sort of build what I'll call our intellectual and our moral house. And that's what's so exciting about this movement is that these ideas are not hard. They're, they're very uh, straightforward, and, and, they, and they're consistent in, in revealing tremendously wonderful and positive impacts on people's lives, where 
psychology was was often a, uh, a, a you know prior to that a, a, a you know sort of a, an exploration into the abyss and uh, and not into a positive place. So it's really terrific. You talk in some other meetings about the opportunity for the the ultimate satisfaction of seeing ourselves grow, the satisfaction of discovering how big a person. There's probably better language than that, but how big a person we can become. So as you get older, yeah. okay, you've seen all the good movies. You've, you know, drunk the best wines already. That, that quits being a thriller. Right. And the idea of just watching yourself, observing yourself in situations of challenge or conflict or something right. else, but the ability to contribute and see how right. big you can get. So I'm, I'm stealing lines from you when I say this, but what, do you, what else do you want to say about that? Well, the idea that, you know, what's the purpose of life is one that you see people uh, endlessly struggle with at different points some some when they're young some as they get older and I I think if if you're constantly thinking about how do I uh, how do I own responsibility for making my life better and in particular and this is something that I've been increasingly intrigued by uh, have a sense of, of gratitude for the extraordinary life we we live I mean I have uh, the benefit of having had uh, a medical problem that allowed me to be uh, deeply appreciative of the you know incredible care that uh, you get, and then you think of, of of what human life was like, and how much there is to be grateful for. And once you think of that, and then you think of the opportunity to make the best of that, it's uh, it's pretty easy, I think, to uh, to energize yourself about uh, you know giving it my best shot and making this the best round I can. And that's kind of that's kind of where I come from with it. So Jay, you're both a student of humans and also a human. You're one of the people participating in the sort of activities you're talking about. How are you noticing yourself getting bigger, or how would you like to see yourself evolving? Regretfully, I have to uh, be thinking a little bit about legacy these days, and because uh, I'm, I'm not a kid anymore. You know, I'm in my 40s, and that's uh, that's, <laughs> exactly. that's a time to you guys. You're not gonna you know, <laughs> not gonna be here forever. Uh, and that's a little, a little bit different mindset for me uh, because I have to recognize that, that there isn't an infinite path. There's a, there's a, a, so I have to think, well, I can't just be a, a work in process. I have to also be uh, able to convert that process into something that, that I want to matter. So personally, I want to be more effective in, in some habits that I have, particularly listening, uh, being less impatient, and asking better questions to influence uh, discussion. And there's always that, that question that what's the one thing that will influence this discussion that's a lot better than kind of my natural, which is to, which is to try to uh, uh, just explain it, you know, or whatever. Say, <laughs> so why don't you guys get it? Uh, so, so I think that's the, uh, that's the thing for me. But for the, for the uh, legacy side, it's, it's really about the people and the values and making sure that we, we have made the philosophy as clean as we possibly can. We did a, la- a round uh, not too long ago with some terrific people, a great team, and I think we've made big improvements in it. I still think there's one piece uh, that we need to, to bring, and that's gratitude. I already mentioned that. Uh, that I think gratitude is the is a, a sort of an attitude and an outlook on life that those who bring it uh, can't develop, devolve into victimhood. They don't get into resentment. It's the perfect... Uh, uh, antidote to that to that mindset, 
and it's demonstrated to be uh, to help clear the mind, uh, find the third way more easily, all the positive. So I think that's a place we want to we I want to get in there before uh, before we call it a day. And there'll be some other things that come up. So Jay, if I could have done any interview well, this is the one I would have most want to do well. <laughs> I don't know if I did it well or not, but uh, is there a question you wish we had covered in this session? I don't think. I think you can only uh, uh, do a good job in an interview when you got the material to <laughs> the person you're working with, and so you have that handicap. But I, I, I would say that the one thing I would want to emphasize is how uh, vitally important uh, business is and the nobility of business and what it means in society. Because uh, people think of, and this was one of the early, you know, uh, 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 this, you know, ideas that is that business is a zero-sum game and it's take what you can and and it, it, it really couldn't be further from the truth if you look at what enables prosperity it's it's a specialization in a world where people trust each other and they work and it not only creates extraordinary value for for uh, uh, for, for consumers and material prosperity and services but it's also the environment where we learn how to improve ourselves and challenge ourselves. And I, I, I doubt there's a person uh, who's been at, at, uh, at Latrim Interlocks uh, an extended period who hasn't said, I've benefited from watching these extraordinary people live the values that uh, I'd like to be more like, or here's an aspect I can improve. And that's, uh, that's a wonderful, positive thing to, uh, to be able to say we do. Uh, and, it, and it charges me up to think that that's what we're about. <clears throat> that's fantastic. So that's, there's no better place than that to wrap. So if you were listening to this podcast in hopes of hearing about Jay as a guard on the University of Texas basketball team scoring a basket alone against Robert Parrish in the late 1970s, you're going to be disappointed because we are not going to talk about that. You're going to have to listen to another podcast in the future to hear about that one. So thanks for listening, and we're going to call it a wrap.